ahead and be seated, please, and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. This is the word of the Lord. It Because it's his word, it has no errors in the original languages in which it was given. And it remains to us, we have that promise uh, through um, scripture, that it remains to us the word of God and faithful translations of the original languages. So this is God's word. Listen reverently and carefully to it. Psalm 72. A psalm of Solomon. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness to the king's son. May he judge thy people with righteousness and thine afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people. Save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Let them fear thee while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace Till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him, and let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. 
Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Amen. Pray with me. <clears throat> o oh Lord, you have said that you will come to the aid of your people who are in need of a helper, as we have just read. Lord, I certainly need your help. All of us here today need your help, your assistance. In my case, in preaching, and in the case of those of us who are listening, which is all of us, in our listening and our application of what we hear. Would you please come to our aid? We ask it for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, um, I'm sure you children have at times, either at a birthday or at Christmas time or some other occasion, received uh, a gift from uh, somebody, a uh, parent perhaps, or a grandparent, somebody else, maybe a friend, a gift that was a toy that perhaps was not fully assembled when you got the gift. A lot of toys come that way. You, they come in boxes and they'll uh, have the uh, various parts inside of them and, and uh, you need to put uh, the toy together. Uh, perhaps it's partially assembled, but you have more things that you have to put on wheels or whatever it might be. Uh, and you have to finish assembling it um, in order to enjoy it. And it always helps when you're assembling something well, in the case of adults, it helps to read the directions. I'm not very good at that. Uh, maybe some of you other men know what I'm, know that problem. But if you're a kid and you're going to assemble the, the toy, finish assembling it, it always helps to have a picture of what the final product looks like, right? Helps to, to know, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like. That colored part is supposed to be on that side and not on that side. And, and those wheels are supposed to be not just on the front, but on the back or whatever. And you look at the, the toy's picture. And that's which, how you know how to finish assembling the toy. Well, just like it helps to have a picture when things are disassembled and you need to reassemble them like toys, it also helps to have a picture of the spiritual kingdom and kingship of Jesus, which has not fully arrived yet but is on its way, if you will. Jesus is our king, children. I don't know if you know that, but uh, hopefully you have heard that before from up here and perhaps your parents, but Jesus is our king. Uh, the, God rules through Jesus, not just over us, but actually over all of the cosmos. That, that's a fancy word for all of the creation. Um, but his, there's a fuller coming of Jesus reign over us. And 
There are places in the scriptures that point to that fuller reign of our Savior over not just over the church, but all of, over all of creation that are found in the scriptures. And probably the best one is right here in Psalm 72. So we're going to learn in this psalm about the reign of Jesus, both the reign of Jesus now, elements of it that are true now, but also elements of it that are coming in the future that we have to look forward to. And you'll hear that as we work our way through this psalm of Solomon. that God intends or wishes to rule over his kingdom through uh, a man, through mankind, is evident in the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches this. Indeed, it teaches us all the way back in the garden. Adam was to be a ruler. He was to be a king. And he was responsible for subduing that which we, he had been charged with ruling over, and that was the earth, and really ultimately the whole of creation. But he was to be a ruler on the triune God's behalf. And of course, Adam messed up in a major way and destroyed all of that. But God had a second had a plan, not a second plan, God had a plan to undo all that damage and to reestablish man as the ruler through, he, through whom he, the triune God, would rule. And that ruler was going to be a second Adam, the Messiah. David was a picture he was a picture. He and his sons were pictures of that divine rule by God through a man. Now, of course, David did, and his successors did rule over Israel, the Davidic uh, dynasty. And the rule of David was not ultimately the rule of David or David's uh, sons either. It was ultimately the rule of God. Israel was a theocracy. It was rule by God through the man, David, or one of his descendants. But of course, David's rule and that of his sons over Israel and beyond the borders of Israel, by the way, David's rule was always only typical. It was a shadow pointing to a greater rule by a greater David, or a greater descendant of David, I should say, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the second Adam. And the Old Testament made it clear, and it made it clear particularly in Psalm 2, but in other places as well, but particularly in Psalm 2, that God had this plan all along, that he was going to rule through his man, who is going to be the anointed one, 
the Mashiach, the Christos of God. And that is the Lord Jesus. And Messiah's reign, Jesus' reign over his realm with which he was charged at the resurrection and the ascension of Christ 2,000 years ago is described for us in this psalm in a beautiful way. Some of the things that we're going to read here already apply to the church. but have yet greater application to the final and fullest expression of Messiah's reign over all of the universe. And some of the elements that we find in here have yet to fully make themselves known. You'll see as we, as we go through this. You'll notice I read the superscription, which isn't, the superscriptions aren't part of the original. Um, so we don't have the promise of all of them being <coughs> divinely inspired, although we, it's clear that some of them are divinely inspired because they're repeated in the New Testament as, as, as if they were God's word. And so we know that certainly some of the superscriptions are. And it's pretty clear that almost all of them are, even if they're not divinely inspired, accurately represent the context in which the psalm was written. So there's great value in, in reading the superscription and thinking about the superscription and how it affects the interpretation uh, of the psalm. Notice it says the psalm of Solomon. It was written by Solomon, this psalm was, in spite of what verse 20 says, where it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. I mentioned this last time. Uh, the reason uh, 20, verse 20 isn't, uh, well, verse 20 is not a reference to this psalm. Verse 20 is a reference, the psalm of David, uh, prayers of David. This, uh, that verse is a reference to an earlier collection of psalms of which David was the chief author, but not the only author, and apparently the last psalm in that collection was a psalm of Solomon, which is our Psalm 72. And the, the close of the collection's description, verse 20, is attached, therefore, to Psalm 72. I hope you followed that. Point is, Solomon wrote this. Solomon wrote uh, this psalm. Probably wrote it early in, in his reign, and as I mentioned last time, wrote it for his subjects to use when they were praying for him, the new king. And it was a pattern for how to pray for him in light of the fact that he was God's man. He was the uh, son of David, literally. And he was God's man whom God wished to rule over his subjects through. And though it is a prayer for Solomon and also for Solomon's descendants in the Davidic line, it was also clearly more than a prayer just for Solomon and his earthly descendants. We know this because, and I hope you heard it as I read it, 
a good deal of the language found in here, in this psalm, merely, it, it outstrips what could be true of a merely human king. And I'll, I'll mention a few things here in just a moment. So clearly he's not sp speaking just about himself and his descendants, but the Holy Spirit speaking through Solomon is speaking of the greatest son of David, the greatest son of Solomon, descendant of Solomon, and that is the Messiah, Jesus, the God-man. This psalm comes into a number of sections, which are broken down uh, into five, um, which is why there are five points here in the brief, so uh, don't, don't panic. Uh, there are five sections to it, two of which we've covered uh, in previous, on a previous occasion. I will briefly comment on those and then spend most of my time in the last three. But the first portion of the psalm, verses 1 through 4, uh, the theme there is the righteous character or the just-slash-righteous character of uh, Messiah's reign. And this is seen, this, uh, this emphasis on justice or righteousness of the king and the need for that is seen in what Solomon says you're to, his subjects are to pray for. Verse 1 of uh, Psalm 72 asks that the king be endowed with God's righteousness and justice. And then verse 2 asks that once so endowed that he, the king, would then judge his subjects in righteousness and with justice and would be their vindicator, uh, their savior, and their deliverer from oppression. Verses 3 and 4. Solomon was a decent king uh, when it came to a fair amount of his reign. He uh, did some good things, of course, but we also know that he did some very bad things. He was not the righteous um, God with a godlike righteousness and a godlike sense of justice that this psalm prays for. He was not, he, he didn't fully answer that prayer, Solomon didn't. That righteousness, that justice that was the object of this prayer in verses 1 through 4 could not have been Solomon and it was not ultimately. It was the perfectly just, the perfectly righteous, divine descendant of Solomon and David who was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the righteous one the son of righteousness. And so the psalm speaks of the righteous character of Jesus' reign. The psalm also speaks in verses uh, 5 through 7, and also in other places uh, this point is kind of made as well, but particularly in verses 5 through 7, of the endless duration of Messiah's reign. It has no end. And this is seen in what is prayed for, uh, that Solomon gives directions how to, how to pray to the people, uh, gives them directions how to pray for him and his descendants. And uh, the language, just it's, it's clear. I'll just read it again. Let them fear thee, God, let 
my subjects fear thee, while the sun, actually the thee there could actually be a reference to the Messiah, while the sun endures, as long as the moon, throughout all generations. Solomon knew he was going to die, four score and seven or somewhere close to that. This isn't about Solomon. It's just not. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Till the moon ceases to exist. Again, no way that can be true of Solomon. And of course it isn't. It is, however, true of the greatest king of Salem. Salem and Solomon come from the word shalom, peace. This is true of the great king of Salem. Your king, my king, if we are Christians, who has brought peace to our hearts and who rules over us as a gentle and wonderful master and friend. His reign, as I said in Sunday school, for those of you who were there, were there Jesus, excuse me, the Son, along with the Father and the Spirit, the Trinity, has ruled from eternity past and from the beginning of the world all the way throughout human history, the Trinity has, triune God has ruled. But there was a new phase or expression, I said this in Sunday school, that came to that rule of God once Jesus in time and space finished his cross work. And so now Psalm 2 has been fulfilled in a way that David could never fulfill it. And so God is reigning through the greater descendant of David, uh, the Messiah, his anointed one. And he is now ruling in a way that is uh, true in the New Testament age that was not true in the Old Testament age. And Jesus' reign began in that messianic way 2,000 years ago, and it will never end until, actually it will end, he delivers his kingdom up to the Father, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. His reign will go on into eternity. And this, this psalm makes that point. This psalm also speaks of, in verses 8 through 12, the theme there is the, the universality of Messiah's reign. The universal expanse, if you will, or um, reach of Messiah's reign. And here again, we see this in the language that Solomon asks his people to pray for, for himself. May he, may Solomon and or one of his descendants, and of course the ultimate descendant, Jesus, may he also rule from sea to sea and from the river, that's the Euphrates, a reference to the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth.
And this was, this was typified in the Davidic dynasty's uh, promise of rule from the sea to the river, from the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean, to the river. Interestingly, David never ruled over all that real estate from the Great Sea to the river. And Solomon, whose kingdom was larger than any of his successors or larger than his father's, even that, his reign didn't actually go all the way to the Euphrates River. Now, his influence did, arguably, but Solomon didn't fulfill that. And that was just between the Euphrates and the, and the Mediterranean. But it was to be a picture of universal rain, of, of rain that covered not just God's people, but the nations. And again, even Solomon didn't, uh, didn't, didn't uh, complete the type, if you will. Jesus did, and does, and is. The prayer in verse 8 um, is fulfilled in Christ. And in verses 10 and 11, uh, Solomon tells his subjects to pray that kings from all over the known world would offer gifts to him, bow down before him, and worship him. Again, some of this, to some degree, happened under Solomon's reign. There was the queen of Sheba. She was a queen, not a king, but close enough, royalty. Uh, other kings that, uh, were, um, uh, that he, were vassal kings to, to Solomon. But Solomon doesn't answer this prayer fully. That this prayer cannot be understood exclusively in terms of Solomon's earthly kingdom is evident, again, from the prayer that goes well beyond what Solomon actually achieved in terms of power and prestige and, and reign. His reign was impressive, but it was merely a type of the infinitely more glorious reign and more expansive realm to which this psalm points, and that is Messiah's, Jesus' reign which as I've already indicated, he's now reigning and he's reigning not merely over this globe, not merely over this solar system, not merely over this galaxy, but he is reigning over this universe with its innumerable galaxies. We don't even know how many galaxies there are. There are probably billions and who knows, maybe, one, maybe there are trillions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each one of them. Our sun is one star. Fairly insignificant one, actually. And Jesus rules over it all. And also, not only does he rule over all places, he rules over all peoples as well, all creatures that he has made. Jesus now is king and is reigning uh, the triune God through him, not, over, not only over men, but over angels. The angelic realm, the spirit realm. Jesus is sovereign. 
Satan does nothing that Jesus doesn't let him do. True of the angels as well. Indeed, amen. He rules over the elect and he rules over the reprobate. He rules over believers and he rules over unbelievers. He rules over heaven and he rules over and in hell. Because hell is merely the place where uh, God's wrath is dispensed. And he is the dispenser of divine justice in hell. Jesus rules over all. There is no place, no situation that our righteous, risen, reigning Savior is not in control. Isn't that good to know? When Kim Jong-il threatens with his missiles and... Uh, the Russians are doing their thing and the cyber thing with the Chinese and some of our rulers aren't always that reliable, stable. Doesn't matter because Jesus is in charge and he gets his way always. This psalm also praise the Lord, speaks of the compassionate nature of Messiah's reign. A reign which already applies to the church and will, in the end, apply to all of his subdued creation. Verses 12 through 14 speak of this compassionate reign of our saviors. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. Solomon's reign only dimly reflected this kind of compassion. Even though Solomon wrote this prayer, almost certainly, certainly, this prayer expressed an ideal that he himself never really fully attained to. You recall what Solomon did during his reign. He imposed very high taxes on his subjects um, as his reign progressed so that he could fund his own grandiose building projects. Pretty much what it was all about. And his lavish uh, court and lifestyle. And this was a burden that his subjects found oppressive. We read of it in 1 Kings chapter 12. We won't bother turning there now, but they were, they were um, weighted down by Solomon and his rule over them. And of course... Um, it really was sowing the seeds of the division of the kingdom. Which came after Solomon died in the reign of his son Rehoboam. Solomon was known for wisdom, not compassion. And even wisdom wasn't always there, as we know. No, this psalm, this prayer rather, was not the answer to it did not come with Solomon. 
It didn't come with Josiah or Hezekiah or Jehoshaphat or Asa. The answer to this prayer came with our Savior, David's greater son, Solomon's greater descendant, who felt compassion for the multitudes who were distressed and helpless and downcast, and he cared and cares now. Jesus' compassion for the distressed and the helpless and the spiritually poor people around him was seen in the way he healed the sick and ministered to the outcasts. You recall, in compassion, we are told, Jesus touched the leper and healed him. A man who was a pariah to everybody else and everybody fled from because he had leprosy. Jesus touches him and heals him because wanted to show him compassion, not just give him health. Wanted to show him the love of God. Jesus' compassion is also evident in his casting out of the demon from the Syrophoenician woman's, uh, the Syrophoenician uh, woman, rather. No, uh, the, uh, the, her daughter, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. She was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. She, didn't, she hadn't been worshiping the God of Israel. He goes to her and delivers her daughter. A woman, by the way, too. Not a man, but a woman and her daughter. Our Savior's compassion. And of course, Jesus shared the gospel with a Samaritan woman who was quite immoral, not to mention a Samaritan dog and a woman. Compassion. And of course, I could multiply examples. These are just a few illustrative ones. Well, this is a compassion, of course, of our Savior that is most evident at the cross. Right? All of hell's fury, all of divine wrath, the full infinite wrath of the triune God and the Father in particular came down upon him and it was all voluntary on his part. He could have said, no, I, I, I'm not, no, it's not worth it. Why did he say yes? Compassion for you and me. Think of the compassion that Jesus has shown you already, those of you who are Christians. He chose to die for you. By the way, he chose you first. Then he chose to die for you. He set his eternal love upon you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He has prepared a, a, a place for you in heaven. He longs for your fellowship. He's going to get your fellowship in a special way shortly. Love did all this, you see. And even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
Christ is still showing compassion to you. Because you're here, hearing this sermon, and he arranged that by his spirit. And you're hearing the words of grace. You're hearing that Jesus is your only hope of being forgiven, and you need him, and you need to flee to him, and you're hearing that right now. And that's the compassion of Christ that has brought this about, if you're here and you're not a Christian. You need to respond to the love, or to the compassion, I should say, of Christ that he is showing you right now by accepting the free gift of eternal life that comes only through Jesus. But it's only as you trust in Jesus, not just to save you from hell, but also to be your king, your master, that you receive that gift of eternal life and forgiveness. And then you'll know the compassion of Jesus in a way that you don't currently know it. But you must believe on the Lord Jesus. Trust in him to save you and to be your master and your Lord. And you must only trust in that or you won't get Jesus. If you throw anything else in the mix, your good works, your baptism, the fact you're a church member at this or any other church and you're not a Christian, you throw anything else in the mix, you don't have Jesus. And you will stand before God and you'll, the full fury of divine justice will come upon you, a sinner, and you won't have the protection of Jesus' wounds unless you trust in him alone to save you. Well, finally and very briefly, this passage also speaks of the boundless blessings of Messiah's reign over you and me. Blessings that will come as a result of this cosmic and universal and glorious ultimate rule of Christ. I won't take the time to take it apart right now, but he speaks of material prosperity in verses 15 and 16, which were pictures of uh, the material prosperity, uh, probably uh, refers to the, uh, or points to the spiritual blessings that are, that are alluded to a little more clearly in verses 17 and following. And it will be blessedness that is beyond our ability to even imagine, folks. And it's part of that inheritance um, of the saints in light that we spoke of in Sunday school, for those of you that were here. And it's what's coming. It's what we already possess in a, in a um, provisional way now as Christians. We're already part of that kingdom. We're already receiving blessings from our king. And yes, they include material blessings for, for us Western folks. And spiritual blessings as well. And it's only because he is giving them graciously to you and me that we have them. Otherwise, we would be destitute spiritually and otherwise. This is your Savior's rule. Isn't it wonderful? Look forward to the fuller expression of it and enjoy it now. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our King, that you are our Master, our Lord, and our Savior, and our Redeemer, and our Mediator, and our Substitute, and our friend, and our elder brother in the faith. You are our all in all. You are everything to us, for through you and only through you do we have our triune God. and his approbation. We thank you, Lord, that we are already citizens of a new kingdom. And we thank you that one day, one day, that kingdom will be evident, that kingship will be evident to all, including to your enemies and ours, both human and spiritual. We thank you, Lord, that the end of history has been written, that you, Lord Jesus, win it all, and we win in you. Help us, Lord, to serve you this week with great joy, great enthusiasm, great desire to please you in a as a child pleases his parents because of what you've done for us first. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you savingly, Jesus, prick their hearts, pierce their hearts. Call him or her out of the darkness into the kingdom of marvelous light, the kingdom of your son. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What we've just heard is the uh, the gospel in words, gospel in a broad sense of the term, in the preaching. What we have here before us is the gospel in pictorial form. Uh, through the elements, uh, our handling of them, it points to the substitutionary work of our Savior, our covenant head, our King, uh, for us. And this is one of two sacraments that he, or holy ordinances, sacraments, same thing, that he instituted before he ascended into heaven. Baptism being the other sacrament. Record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found uh, in three of the Gospels and then in 1 Corinthians where Paul, who was not present when Jesus uh, for the, up, the, the upper room but who received this from Christ nonetheless uh, later description of what happened he records that for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 I'm going to read that to you starting in verse 23 for I received from the Lord, so Paul received from Jesus, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. This sacrament is a sign and a seal of the new covenant with Jesus as the covenant head. Jesus is the, I don't often say this, but I need to say it more often. I'm trying to remember to say it more often. Jesus is actually the one who is hosting the board here, hosting the table. I am just uh, acting in his as his instrument, if you will. But he is the one who is offering communion with you, fellowship with you and me. Uh, and this is his table. Um, it is a sign and seal of what he accomplished in the covenant of grace as the covenant mediator. It is a sign it is in that it is, it's symbolic. It, it pictures for us uh, the uh, core element of his atoning work, namely his... Uh, uh, death uh, and all that led up to that, the punishment that he received, uh, absorbing God's wrath that we deserve, and he absorbed it fully, and that thus he was able to say, it is finished, it's done. And so it's a sign, it points to what he did for us to, to affect that propitiatory outcome. But it is also a seal. It is more than just a mere symbol. It is also God himself, particularly Christ, is saying something to you who partake of it rightly. And that is, he is sealing uh, the uh, Christ and all the benefits of the covenant. He is guaranteeing afresh, confirming afresh the, the covenant promises, the, the gospel promises, one and the same thing, essentially, that he has made in his word to you. And those promises, he's saying, I'm good for those. So if you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, you need to know that his promises regarding um, the perseverance of all those who are truly his children, um, it's guaranteed. And this is an instrument by which God might be assuring you that he's not going to change his mind with respect to you if you're, if you're one of his children. And things of that nature. It is, we are proclaiming the Lord's death uh, until he comes as we partake of this, and it is of enormous benefit to those who partake by faith. That is the only way to partake of this. You don't, you're not eating crackers and drinking a little wine here uh, and just going through motions. If you are, you're not partaking by faith and you must not partake if that's the way you're going to do it. Only This is only for those who are 
believers and who partake of this, looking to Christ as they partake of this, these elements. Looking to his, the blessings that flow only from him. And they do flow through the means of grace. This is one of the principal means of sanctifying grace. Not saving grace, but sanctifying grace to those who are already believers. And God, the Holy Spirit, will use this as you partake um, by faith, looking to Christ, will use this to, to strengthen you, to bless you in ways that are up to him, really, but may involve assuring you, may involve strengthening you to, in your dealing with some sin in your life or temptation in your life, rather, um, uh, may involve uh, uh, instruction, new insights into the, the meaning of the atonement, uh, uh, that you hadn't thought about before, whatever. The Lord, the, that is the Lord, the Holy Spirit, uh, uses these means as well as this means as, as preeminent means to bless and sanctify us as his people. This meal is not for everyone. This meal is only for those who know themselves to be Christians and you need to be a uh, baptized member in good standing of an evangelical church. Let me just explain that. This is the sign, this is, this is the way we can be, have some assurance that you actually are a, a Christian. Um, because you've been admitted to a church that is evangelical. That means that uh, it believes that Jesus alone is the only way to God. The Jesus of the Bible, by the way, not, not the Jehovah's Witnesses Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible who is fully God, fully man, and the only way to heaven. That you're believe that the church teaches that and says that it's only by trusting in Jesus that you gain access to that salvation that he purchased. That's, evangel that's the evangelical, that's the evangel, the gospel. If you belong to a church other than this one that holds to that view, you're in good standing, you're not under discipline, and uh, you're a baptized member of that church. That means they've admitted you. Um, at, uh, baptism is the sign of entrance into the covenant community or the church. Uh, so somebody has examined you um, and, and examined your testimony, if you will, of faith. You are welcome to come if that applies to you, uh, but you're not a member of this church. Uh, but you must not come if you are not a Christian or if you claim to be a Christian, but you're clinging to some sin in your life and you know you're clinging to it and you're like, it's mine, God. You can't have it. I'm sorry. You may well not be a Christian if that's your attitude or you're a Christian and you're foolish. Either way, you need to stay away from this meal. You need to ask God for repenting grace, if you will, that he would bring you to your senses, in other words, because you're playing games with God and God is not mocked. He doesn't like games. That's putting it mildly. Um, but if you are struggling with sin, if you've... If you're struggling to do the right thing and you have failed, uh, maybe quite a bit even, but you hate it when you fail, you don't want to keep failing and you want to honor God and you, need, you want the strength to do it more and more consistently, absolutely, this is exactly what you need. You come. You partake. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing on our time now. Oh Lord, we do 
rejoice in your enormous condescension. Lord Jesus, you are the enthroned king in the highest of heavens, and yet you have condescended to meet with us here and to offer us this uh, communion with yourself. And you have condescended further by providing elements that our senses can taste and touch um, that help us to grasp spiritual truths more easily. We are most grateful. We thank you for the promises that attend the right use of this means. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to rightly partake, that is, to be feeding upon Christ in our hearts by faith, looking to him alone for our comfort and our assurance and our blessing. Would you help us to do that? And Lord, would you also please set aside these uh, elements from their common everyday use unto the holy purposes for which we are about to use them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night in which was, he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we are all served, and then we will eat together, and likewise with the wine. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat.
in the same manner he took the cup, and having given thanks as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. There is grape juice in the center if you can't in good conscience partake of the wine, but we would strongly encourage you to take of the wine. blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your presence in us, Lord. We thank you that Now that we are yours and you are ours, that nothing will ever change that. We thank you that you will, through means such as this, cause us to persevere until the end of our days, until you bring us home to glory. Please help us, Lord, to grow in Christlikeness this week. Please use our participation here Toward that end, that we might be better servants, better witnesses, better prepared for heaven at the end of this week than we are now. And we ask this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.